been going around Facebook. And uh, in that article, it was talking about, you know, how do you know when, when you're mature? The thing that was interesting to me, and it wasn't written by a Christian, but there were a number of uh, Christians I know who thought, oh, this is a pretty good article. There were statements in it like, one of the signs of maturity is knowing that the situation you're in is just the one you're in and you have to make the best of it. Or, uh, I think another statement that it said was something along the lines of, you know, life is short so you just sort of have to deal with people because you just don't want your life to be miserable. So I read through that article and I asked myself, isn't there more hope to be found for us as Christians than some of those kinds of statements? Doesn't the Bible point us to a more optimistic look at life? Not that life is easy. Not that life is without difficulty. Not that life doesn't have its challenges. But you look at the psalm that we're going to look at tonight. And Psalm 28 says... Things like, Blessed be the Lord because He's heard the voice of my supplication. Or, Be your, their shepherd also and carry them forever. If David could cry out to God with those sorts of words, isn't there hope for us as believers more than just, It is what it is. Deal with it. Try not to have too miserable of a life. There's more hope to be found in Christ than that. Don't settle for, as uh, I understand the ladies have been talking about in the ladies' Bible study, just because Kelly and I were talking about the passage, don't settle for worldly philosophy that says, you know, that's all there is, deal with it. If God is real, and He works, and He changes us, there's hope for us. Let's start in verse 1. You, O Lord, I call my rock. Do not be deaf to me. So obviously, again, David's calling to the Lord. It's the God who knows his people, loves his people, cares for his people. It's fascinating to me that he says, My rock, do not be deaf to me. Because by definition, that's what a rock is, right? It can't respond. It just sits there. It's... It's a rock. There's a rock in the corner of my yard near the driveway. When we first moved in, we were worried we were going to run the car over it. That hasn't happened. But um, it just sits there. Dogs are very interested in it. Sometimes it grows weeds around it, but it just sits there. That's what we think of as a rock, right? But David is talking about God as a rock, not in a literal sense, like you're a a boulder sitting on the ground like out in the the yard for decoration but that you are my security you're my fortress you're my help how do we know that? because he's going to say in verse 7 the Lord is my strength and my shield so this is the imagery that David often uses to remind us that God is the source of the stability that we should have in our lives as those who follow after him when he says do not be deaf to me I think it certainly calls to mind some of the examples throughout the Old Testament 
where people called on false gods and those gods were deaf. The prophets over and over again had harsh words for idolatry because they said, you went, you cut down a tree. Half of it you burned as fuel so you could cook your supper. The other half you decorated, put on a ledge in your house and worshipped it. How foolish is that? To be fair, they were often not just worshipping that specific object, but a spiritual force that they believed to be behind that object. And we recognize that we sometimes practice idolatry today, even if we don't set up a little shrine. But do we recognize that one of the key differences between God and false gods is the fact that he is alive and that he hears us. And as we saw when we started uh, studying on Wednesday nights last summer, one of the key characteristics of people who know God is that they call upon the Lord. That's what David's doing here. And he's saying, God, you're my refuge, my strength, my help. Hear what I'm saying. And then he says, why? For if you are silent to me, you are silent to me, I will become like those who go down to the pit. It's interesting that he says, if you are silent to me, because we expect that he would say, if you don't hear me, but it seems like he's expecting a response from God, right? If you're silent to me, if you don't say anything to me, what, what will happen? I will become like those who go down to the pit. I don't want to go too far afield on this subject, but when I read that phrase, go down to the pit, I did some reading on and thinking about what was the Old Testament Jews' perspective on death. The reason that I was thinking about that was because uh, we see in, I believe it's Psalm 40, a familiar one where he says, you brought me up out of the pit of destruction. There are several other psalms where this idea of the pit is used. There are places where it was a literal pit, this word. Joseph was thrown into a pit while his brothers were figuring out what to do with him. Uh, Jeremiah was thrown into a kind of pit that was a cistern because they didn't want to hear his message. But, uh, it's also used figuratively in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Satan will be bound in a pit for a thousand years. Um, uh, Christ talked about pit and Sheol and those sorts of related ideas. So what was the Old Testament Jews' perspective on the pit? Essentially, I think they viewed it as death. Um, did they have a concept of the resurrection? At the very least, their concept of the resurrection was certainly not what Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 15, because there are a great number of elements that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection that had not yet been made clear, at least that we have recorded in Scripture, uh, in full detail. But did they at least have an awareness of the difference in outcome between those who followed God and those who did not follow God? There are some people who say, well, they said sort of this primitive belief and it was just um, everybody dies and everybody ends up sort of all lumped together. And we get a little bit of that flavor in Ecclesiastes. The rich die, the poor die, everybody dies. But I don't think that that was the entirety of their perspective on what that was like. What David is doing here is setting up this contrast. God, you can deliver me and I will have life, or you can fail to hear my cry 
and I'll be like those who go down into the pit, those who die, those who've come to destruction. So, he says again in verse 2, hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you for help. Supplication, long word, he's pleading with God. He's making a request before God. Hear what I'm saying. I'm, I'm eagerly and sincerely asking you for it. But where is he looking for God to answer from? And I think this is important because we see it we saw it uh, last week. We've seen it in previous psalms. When I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. And again, uh, think about what Paul says in Acts 17. God doesn't need a temple or a sanctuary. He's not bound by it. He's not added to by there being one that is, this is God's place to dwell. But for the Israelites, that was the central place that they looked to as being, here's where God is present among us. Uh, so, what would the parallel be for us today? It would be crying out to God through the ministry of Jesus Christ. He's our mediator. He's our high priest. We would go through Him. We're not looking to a specific building or place in that sense, like David would have been as a Jew uh, with the tabernacle. But there is certainly an opportunity for us to seek God's face through Christ in the same way that David did. What's David's fear? Verse 3. Do not drag me away with the wicked and with those who work iniquity. Verse 5, the, end, the last phrase, he will tear them down and not build them up. David's fear is, if I am not rescued by God, then it may be that God does not accept me it may be that I deserve punishment and I will be lumped in with those who are wicked and who are evil. How does he describe them? Those who work iniquity. So it's not just that they're wicked as a general descriptive word, but they actively practice sin. There's different words for sin in the Bible, iniquity, unrighteousness, transgression, all those different sorts of ideas. Um, and they all give slightly different flavors, but the bottom line idea is they're not doing what God wants them to do. They're doing what God says they shouldn't do. What's a characteristic of these sorts of wicked people who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts? We call that hypocrisy. Somebody um, sort of like walks up to you and they start being really nice to you and you realize that they have a different agenda of why they're doing that. They want to sell you something. They want to gain some advantage from you. They're not doing it for you. They're doing it for them. That's a characteristic of those who are wicked. What does David ask God to do toward them? Well, I think in verse 3 when he says, Do not drag me away with the wicked. He's saying, Don't do this with the confident expectation that God will not do it, or else he wouldn't say what he says in verse 4 requite or repay them according to their work and according to the evil of their practices requite them according to the deeds of their hands repay them their recompense so he says in four different ways well at least three pay them back so we tend to think of wages as a good thing you get your paycheck Look at your bank statement. There's more money there, hopefully, than there was previously. That's a good thing, right? 
Dave, or David is saying that the wages of the evil ones is punishment, which is not so very different from what it says in Romans, right? The wages of sin is death. David's saying, God, pay them what they are owed. Can or should we pay such a th- or pray such a thing today? I think that we can pray for God to accomplish justice. I think sometimes, I mean, justice has two outcomes. God accomplishes transformation of a sinner, or God punishes that sinner and shows his glory in that way as well. And so the challenge, I think, for us to pray in this sort of way is we tend to be out for revenge. Somebody pulls over in front of us right before the light changes, we want to go smash their car. And is that an appropriate response? No. 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 However, we might justify it, it's not. Um, somebody says something mean to us. We want to, um, when we were trying to sell our house, the guy that was supposed to be processing the loan for our buyer, just was doing a terrible job. I don't know if it was laziness or incompetence or just deliberately. I, I don't really know what the, what the deal was. There was a part of me that wanted to be like, I want to go online and post all this stuff about him so that nobody ever uses him again because I was so frustrated with it. Would that accomplish justice or would it just accomplish revenge? It wouldn't really accomplish justice because although it indirectly affected me, he was working for the lady that was buying our house. She was the one that he had, he had offended and, and, and was uh, not treating well. So I think there's a sense in which we have to recognize that we have to guard our hearts against the desire to go beyond, to recognize that we ask God to take justice and proper repayment. It doesn't mean we don't take advantage of opportunities to seek justice if somebody breaks into your house and steals all your stuff, that doesn't mean you can't talk to the police about it or, or you know, make an insurance claim. But it does mean that you don't go find the person and beat them up over it or something like that, like you see in all these, all these, uh, all these movies. I saw a preview for one that came out a few years ago. And um, there's this break-in robbery, and then the guy basically goes and like gets rid of everybody that was ever connected with the crime. And and that's sort of like glorified, you know, here's the anti-hero getting it done. And that can't be our attitude. God accomplishes justice in his time. It's right and proper for us to pray for him to do so. It's interesting that it says in verse 5 that the reason that they fall under God's judgment is not only because they do evil, but also because they don't do good. Verse 5, because they do not regard the works of the Lord's nor the deeds of his hands. That's Romans 1. I know God, I ignore him, I reject him, I go my own way. So it's not just, we usually think of it like they're doing bad stuff so God should punish them. But they're also not worshiping God as they should. And that's something that I think we should be challenged about because it's easy for us not to worship God as we should, right? It's easy for us to say, I don't break the Ten Commandments, at least not any of the big ones, but do I worship God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? 
Is there an element of wickedness in all of us that we have to constantly be dealing with? David asks God to accomplish justice and is confident that God will do it. So, David lifts up his hands to God. They don't listen to the works of God's hands. God, with his hands, will tear them down. It's interesting to see that imagery throughout those first few verses there. Then we get to the more positive note of the psalm. Blessed be the Lord, because he has heard the voice of my supplication. So, this psalm moves from, help me, praise to God, here's the next thing I'm asking God to do. We're going to see that in the last verse. But, he says, blessed be the Lord, because he's heard the voice of my supplication. When God hears and answers our prayer, we ought to praise him, we ought to rejoice in what he's done. Then David expresses what his relationship to God is like. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and I am helped. Therefore my heart exults and with my song I shall thank him. Do we have that testimony? It's easy for us to get in the middle of a busy week or a time when we're sick or just whatever else is going on in life and to forget a statement of hope like what David says here. God is my strength and my shield. I trust in him and I am helped. Not, I hope he'll do something about this, but he's helped me in the past, he's helping me now, he'll help me in the future. I am helped. And not just, I'm kind of encouraged about that, but my heart exults. I'm excited, I'm joyous, I'm thankful for what God is doing in my life. And then it even spills out into song. Now, obviously, David was a musician, so maybe for not for all of us does it spill out in song, at least in the same way that it did for David. But at the very least, he's saying, I'm praising God. And that's something I think all of us can do. Do we believe that God is our strength and shield? Do we trust in Him and see that He helps us? And do we uh, respond in praise to Him? David shifts perspective. He says my in verse 7 and he says there in verse 8. Why? Because I think he's applying it more broadly not just to himself but to the entire people of Israel. For that matter for all who follow God which was largely the same group as the people of Israel in the Old Testament the Lord is their strength. So for people who say oh this is just a psalm about David there's a broader application. It does say verse 8 He's a saving defense to his anointed. So that would have been the king, David himself. But God also ministered to the people of Israel. What were examples of times when God was the strength of his people? Think about the Israelites leaving Egypt. Who provided for them? Who met their needs? Who gave them the strength for the journey? Um, it talks about in another psalm that summarizes Israel's, histories, that Israel's history that God provided food for them. Their shoes didn't wear out. He gave them what they needed, all of those sorts of things. God was their strength. When they were, even when they were captives in Babylon and in Assyria, God was their strength. When they were under Roman oppression, God was their strength. God can be our strength as well. Then David closes with another request. Save your people, bless your inheritance, be their shepherd also, and carry them forever. When he calls on God to save his people, there's this expectation that I think we see picked up in the prophetic books in the Old Testament that no matter how bad things seem, 
there is always a remnant of God's people that he preserves. Sometimes we think it's only a handful and it's a lot more than that. Think about what God said to Elijah. Elijah said, I'm the only one who follows you. And God said, yeah, but what about the several thousand other guys who are also following me? We forget, we think we're the only one, but God is not just working here, but he's working in other places too. He saves his people. He blesses his inheritance. Specifically, David probably had in mind the covenant that God made with him and the ideas that are in Genesis 12 that God said to Abraham, I will bless you with land seed and you'll be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. But I was just looking through the book of Ephesians with kids in the Bible class that I'm teaching and it's interesting all the things that are in there about our inheritance as well. So David had an expectation of an inheritance. We have an expectation of an inheritance and we certainly can and should pray that God will bless our inheritance through Christ. Recognizing that it's a different one to some extent that what David was seeing but they're connected. God hasn't promised us eternal kingship from our descendants, but he has promised us a way to share in that, right? And then the last phrase, be their shepherd and carry them forever. I don't know how you feel about the, um, I don't know if it's a poem or a, just a story, the thing about footprints in the sand. It's a little bit... Um, right word, emotionalistic. But there's a very real sense in which God is our shepherd and he carries us and he upholds us. Not just for a day, not just for a week, but David says, be their shepherd and carry them forever. How do we see that played out in the New Testament? I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. Or what Jesus says in John 10 in the context of describing God as the good shepherd. You're in me, held by the Spirit, secured by the Father. So, do we have hope in this life that is more than just deal with it, it is what it is? I think we do. I think this psalm gives us some ideas of what that looks like. Let's go now to uh, getting some prayer requests and then to our time of prayer.